Welcome to episode 14 of Bearskins, Bayonets and Bravery, Notes from the Guards Museum. My name is Andrew Wallace and I am the director of the museum. I'd like to start this week by offering my sincere thanks to all those who have donated money to help the museum survive the lockdown. As previously mentioned, all our revenue streams have disappeared and we are facing a year with no revenue at all. Therefore, these donations are critically important so my thanks are both heartfelt and genuine. One person who was in the vanguard to make a donation was a guy called Steve Marcham, formerly of Her Majesty's 1st or stately regiment of foot guards, yes, a stalwart and proud grenadier. At this point I have to confess to a bit of hero worship, as this guy didn't just write the book on how to be a charismatic leader, he ate the book. Major Marcham was formerly a regimental sergeant major and owned the drill square when he was instructing in drill. These days, Steve is the general manager of Vintners Hall, the home of the Worshipful Company of Vintners, the trade association of wine producers and shippers. Talk about leaving a fox in charge of the chicken run. Some of you may know that it was in the courtroom at Vintners Hall that General George Monk sat with the bankers in the City of London and hammered out the financial package that supported the restoration of King Charles II to the throne of England. George Monk founded the Coldstream Guards in 1650, and was pivotal in reinstating the monarchy. Thank God Steve was off work that day, as it's unlikely he being a proud grenadier would ever have allowed George Monk into the building, he being a Coldstreamer. Just goes to show how close we came to being a republic. Steve, the nation thanks you. Steve is famous for one other thing. He's the most accomplished deliverer of Kipling's poetry. I have watched him hold a room spellbound by his performance of these outstanding poems. I thought I knew all of Kipling's works, but he introduced me to a poem I hadn't come across before, called The Pharaoh and the Sergeant, and it was written in 1897. Kipling talks about the remarkable skill British sergeant instructors attached to the Egyptian army had in moulding native Egyptians into fighting soldiers. Kipling makes his hero an unidentifiable sergeant with the description of Sergeant What's-His-Name. And the poem goes like this. Said England unto Pharaoh, I must make a man of you that will stand upon his feet and play the game, that will maxim his oppressors as a Christian ought to do. And she sent old Pharaoh, Sergeant What's-His-Name. It was not a duke nor earl, nor yet a viscount. It was not a big brass general that came, but a man in khaki kit who could handle men a bit, with his bedding labelled Sergeant What's-His-Name. Said England unto Pharaoh, Though at present singing small, you shall hum a proper tune before it ends. And she introduced old Pharaoh to the sergeant once for all, and left him in the desert making friends. It was not a crystal palace nor cathedral, it was not a public house of common fame, but a piece of red-hot sand with a palm in either hand and a little hut for Sergeant What's-His-Name. Said England unto Pharaoh, you've had miracles before, when Aaron struck your rivers into blood. But if you watch the sergeant, he can show you something more, for he's a charm for making riflemen from mud. It was neither Hindustani, French nor Coptics, It was odds and ends and leavings of the same. 
translated by a stick, which is really half the trick. And Pharaoh arced to Sergeant What's-His-Name. There were years that no one talked of. There were times of horrid doubt. There was faith and hope and whacking and despair. While the sergeant gave the cautions and he combed old Pharaoh out. And England didn't seem to know nor care. That is England's awful way of doing business. She would serve her God, or Gordon, just the same. For she thinks her empire still is the Strand and Oburn Hill. And she doesn't think of Sergeant What's-His-Name. Send England to the sergeant. You can let my people go. England used them cheap and nasty from the start. And they entered them in battle on a most astonished foe. But the sergeant, he had hardened Pharaoh's heart, which was broke along of all the plagues of Egypt, three thousand years before the sergeant came. And he mended it again in a little more than ten till Pharaoh fought like Sergeant What's-His-Name. It was wicked bad campaigning, cheap and nasty from the first. There was heat and dust and coolie work and sun. There were vipers, flies and sandstorms. There was cholera and thirst. But Pharaoh done his best he'd ever done. Down the desert, down the railway, down the river, like Israelites from bondage so he came between the clouds of dust and fire, to the land of his desire, and his Moses, it was Sergeant What's-His-Name. We are eating dirt in handfuls for to save our daily bread, which we have to buy from those who ate us most. And we must not raise the money where the sergeant raised the dead, and it's wrong and bad and dangerous to boast. But he did it on the cheap and on the quiet, and he's not allowed to forward any claim. Though he drilled a black man white, though he made a mummy fight, he will still continue. Sergeant What's-His-Name. Private Corporal Colour Sergeant and Instructor. But the everlasting miracle's the same. And so to this week's part of the virtual tour. This week we are looking at the period between the two world wars. The Great War, which was thought to be the war to end all wars, but that proved not to be the case. The horrors of the Great War were still fresh in mind. One of the greatest things to happen between the two wars was the abdication of Edward VIII. Edward VIII, later Prince Edward, Duke of Windsor, was King of the United Kingdom and the Dominions of the British Empire and the Emperor of India from the 20th of January 1936 until his abdication on the 11th of December that year. Edward was born during the reign of his great-grandmother, Queen Victoria, as the eldest child of the Duke and Duchess of York, later King George V and Queen Mary. He was created Prince of Wales on his 16th birthday, nine weeks after his father succeeded as king. As a young man, Edward served in the British Army during the First World War and undertook several overseas tours on behalf of his father. While Prince of Wales, he engaged in a series of affairs that worried his father and the British Prime Minister, Stanley Baldwin. Edward became king on his father's death on the 20th of January 1936. As king, he showed impatience with court protocol and caused concern among politicians by his apparent disregard for established constitutional conventions. Only months into his reign, he caused a constitutional crisis by proposing to Wallace Simpson an American who had divorced her first husband and was seeking a divorce from her second, 
the Prime Ministers of the United Kingdom and the Dominions opposed their marriage, arguing a divorced woman with two living husbands was politically and socially unacceptable as a prospective Queen Consort. Additionally, such a marriage would have conflicted with Edward's status as the titular head of the Church of England, which at that time disapproved of remarriage after divorce if a former spouse was still alive. Edward knew the Baldwin government would resign if the marriage went ahead, which would have forced a general election and would have ruined his status as a politically neutral constitutional monarch. When it became apparent he could not marry Wallace and remain on the throne, he abdicated on the 11th of December 1936. He was succeeded by his younger brother, George VI. His entire reign lasted a mere 326 days. Edward is one of the shortest reigning monarchs in British history. After his abdication, Edward was created Duke of Windsor. He married Wallace Simpson in France on the 3rd of June 1937, after her second divorce became final. Later that year, the couple toured Germany. During the Second World War, Edward was first stationed with the British military mission to France, but after private accusations that he was a Nazi sympathiser, he was appointed Governor of the Bahamas. After the war, Edward spent the rest of his life in retirement in France. He and Wallace remained married until his death in 1972. Wallace died 14 years later. When the First World War broke out in 1914, Edward had reached the minimum age for active service and was keen to participate. He joined the Grenadier Guards in June 1914. And although Edward was willing to serve on the front line, Secretary of State for War Lord Kitchener refused to allow it, citing the immense harm that would occur if the heir apparent to the throne were captured by the enemy. Despite this, Edward witnessed trench warfare firsthand and visited the front line as often as he could for which he was awarded the Military Cross in 1916. His role in war, although limited, made him popular among veterans of the conflict. He undertook his first military flight in 1918, and later gained a pilot's licence. He took the salute at Trooping the Colour only once in 1936, but he also presented new colours to the Grenadier Guards, Coldstream Guards and to the Scots Guards in Hyde Park, and in a separate ceremony to the Irish Guards earlier that year. We have some artefacts that belong to the short-lived king. When King Edward succeeded his late father, he automatically became colonel-in-chief of the five regiments of foot guards. This would obviously require five full sets of uniform. David, or Edward VIII as he was now styled, thought this was an outrageous waste of money. So he had one Athol grey greatcoat made, but with five different sets of buttons, all neatly packed into a small tin box. Rather like a Formula One pit stop, the King's butler could change the buttons on the greatcoat without it being removed, so in theory, the King could review three different regiments in a morning without having to get changed. The greatcoat carries the black crepe armband which Edward wore whilst in mourning for his late father. He even had an early form of Velcro, which meant he could change the badge on his number one dress cap, thus avoiding the need to buy several dress caps. A perfect example of royal thrift. We also have his beautiful field boots on display. I get to clean these gorgeous boots every January when we clean the display collection. If these artefacts could only speak, what tales they will be able to tell.
Underneath the greatcoat we have the tunic which belonged to Edward and which came to the museum following the death of the Duchess of Windsor in Paris in 1986. Most people don't realise that when a monarch changes, so does their crown and cipher. And as every serviceman and woman wears the sovereign's uniform, there are massive consequential changes that have to be made to them too. Buttons, badges, belt lockets and a wide variety of other things all have to change. There are a number of small companies in Britain, such as J.R. Gaunt's or Furman and Sons, who are well versed in handling such mammoth tasks, having been through the process several times over the many years of their operation. The Ministry of Defence, in conjunction with the College of Arms, design the new buttons and badges, and master copies are made, against which all buttons and badges produced are checked to ensure their consistent quality. These template examples are known as the sealed patterns, as that is exactly what they are. The masters are mounted on a card, stating what they are and giving key measurements. And then a wax government seal is affixed, showing it to be the genuine master copy. Designs were made and approved for the crown and cipher which would be used during the reign of King Edward VIII. However, he abdicated before they could be put into production. So we have the sealed patterns on display, sitting there in testament to the path not taken. We even have the template for the new state colour of the Grenadier Guards, which would have been presented had Edward ever been crowned. On her 16th birthday, Princess Elizabeth was made Colonel of the 1st or Grenadier Regiment of Foot Guards, following the death of His Royal Highness Prince Arthur, Duke of Connaught and Strathern. The regiment presented her with a beautiful brooch in the form of the regimental cipher made in diamonds, silver and enamel. We have a photograph of the princess taken on her 16th birthday by the court photographer Cecil Beaton, showing her wearing the brooch. We also have on display the thank you letter written by the princess to the regiment, and it reads as follows. I cannot tell you how delighted I am with this very beautiful brooch, and I ask you to accept my most grateful thanks. It was a great honour and privilege to have been appointed Colonel of the Grenadier Guards, and I should do all in my power to uphold and foster the great traditions of the regiment which I have already learnt to love. On a visit to the museum, Her Majesty saw the letter and paused. Then she turned and said, I can remember writing that. Then she paused again and said, and I can remember my father standing over me while I wrote it. So even royal children were made to do their thank you letters. Visitors to the Gars Museum will no doubt have noticed that one of the less military items on display is a very detailed model of a steam locomotive. The model of the Scots Guardsman is the result of 11 and a half years' work painstakingly carried out by Mr David Ansell, who served in the army between 1952 and 1954. David became interested in steam locomotives during World War II and once travelled on a train from Euston being pulled by the real Scots Guardsman train. In 1992, he decided to build a model of the Scots Guardsman and began extensive research, not only with the National Railway Museum in York, but also by corresponding with individuals who had knowledge of the Royal Scot class of locomotives that could assist him with his project. 
He was also aware that the original locomotive had survived and was being preserved. His model was designed to be a static exhibition piece which would stand on a 6 foot 6 length of track. It was to be a 5 inch gauge model and every detail was carefully calculated to keep it scaled as closely to the original as possible. An extensive range of materials were needed, sourced and used to create this truly wonderful representation of the locomotive. On the 12th of October 2006, Mr Ansell generously donated the completed model to the Gars Museum. It was accepted on behalf of the museum by the curator, yours truly, and by Captain W. Maitland McGill Crichton of the Scots Guards. Also present was Mr Ansell's wife, Yvonne. On a lighter note, you might be interested to know that Will Maitland McGill Crichton could boast three surnames, and while serving in the Scots Guards, his father, James, was known as Jamie Three Dads. The original Scots Guardsman was one of 50 Royal Scot-class locomotives ordered by the London, Midland and Scottish Railways from the North British Locomotive Company, Springburn, in Glasgow. Their chief mechanical engineer, Henry Fowler, is credited with the design. However, it is also believed that the final working design was primarily that of Herbert Chambers. Each locomotive weighed 83 tonnes. This series of Royal Scot-class locomotives were named after British regiments or famous battles. The Grenadier Guardsman was number 6110, the Coldstream Guardsman 6114, the Irish Guardsman 6116 and the Welsh Guardsman 6117. In 1948, when the railways were nationalised, the number 4 was prefixed to the locomotive's original number, which is why the same engine can appear with two different numbers. Originally they were painted crimson, but since then they have had various different liveries, such as green or black. In addition, they have undergone modifications and improvements. The Scots Guardsman had a moment of stardom when in 1936 it appeared in the film Night Mail. Finally, it was withdrawn from service in 1966. It's now been restored, painted Brunswick green, and is owned by West Coast Railways, who purchased it in 2008. It is one of only two remaining Royal Scot-class locomotives, the other being the Royal Scot. Adjacent to the model train, we have two impressive brass badges, measuring about four feet in length, these curved signs are the boiler badges from two of the five Guardsmen series of trains. These badges would sit either side of the boiler on the steam engine, usually surmounted by a badge of the regiment. They are eye-wateringly heavy and quite crudely cast, but these beauties are worth an absolute fortune each. The world of steam train enthusiasts is willing to pay handsomely to own badges such as these, which are, by their very nature, very rare. In most cases, the steam engines have long since gone to the breaker's yard. The badges were rescued and used to adorn the wall outside the guardroom of whichever barracks where the regiments were stationed. To go off on a bit of a tangent, my regiment, the Honourable Artillery Company, owns the boiler badge from the steam engine named after the regiment. However, their boiler badge is surmounted by the coat of arms of the regiment, for the HAC is the only regiment in the British Army which possesses a coat of arms as well as a cap badge. 
by the by, the HAC is the only regiment in the British Army that has its own Act of Parliament. But I digress. Also in this cabinet, we have the portrait of Lord Gort, who won a Victoria Cross and who was a truly remarkable soldier who crammed an awful lot into his life. Field Marshal John Standish Surtees Prendergast Vereker, 6th Viscount Gort, VC, GCB, CBE, DSO and two bars, MVO and MC, was a senior British Army officer. As a young officer during First World War, he was decorated with the Victoria Cross for his actions during the Battle of the Canal du Nord. During the 1930s, he served as the Chief of the Imperial General Staff. He is best known for commanding the British Expeditionary Force that was sent to France in the first year of the Second World War, only to be evacuated from Dunkirk the following year. Gort later served as Governor of Gibraltar and Malta and High Commissioner for Palestine and Transjordan. The title of Viscount Gort, which he inherited upon the death of his father, was named after Gort, a town in South County Galway in Ireland. Vereker grew up in County Durham and the Isle of Wight. He was educated at Malvern Link Preparatory School, Harrow School, and then entered the Royal Military Academy in Woolwich in January 1904. As Viscount Gort, he was commissioned as a second lieutenant into the Grenadier Guards on the 16th of August 1905 and was promoted to lieutenant on the 1st of April 1907. Gort commanded the detachment of grenadiers that bore the coffin at the funeral of King Edward VII in May 1910. He was made a member of the Royal Victorian Order for his services in that role. On the 5th of August 1914, Gort was promoted to be captain. He went to France with the British Expeditionary Force and fought on the Western Front, taking part in the retreat from Mons in August 1914. He became a staff officer with the 1st Army in December 1914 and became Brigade Major of the 4th Guards Brigade in April 1915. He was awarded the Military Cross in June 1915, promoted to Brevet Major in June 1916. He became a staff officer at the headquarters of the British Expeditionary Force and fought at the Battle of the Somme throughout the autumn of 1916. He was given the rank of Acting Lieutenant Colonel in April 1917, on appointment as commanding officer of the 4th Battalion Grenadier Guards, and, having been awarded the Distinguished Service Order in June 1917, he led his battalion at the Battle of Passchendaele, earning a bar to his DSO in September 1917. On the 27th of November 1918, Gort was awarded the Victoria Cross, the highest award for gallantry in the face of the enemy that can be awarded to British and Commonwealth forces, for his actions on the 27th September 1918 at the Battle of Canal du Nord, near Flesquières in France. The citation reads as follows. Captain, brackets, Brevet Major, Acting Lieutenant Colonel, close brackets, 1st Battalion, Grenadier Guards. For most conspicuous bravery, skilful leading and devotion to duty during the attack of the Guards Division, on the 27th of September 1918, across the Canal du Nord, near Flesquières, when in command of the 1st Battalion Grenadier Guards, the leading battalion of the 3rd Guards Brigade. Under heavy artillery and machine gun fire, he led his battalion with great skill and determination to the forming up ground, where very severe fire from the artillery and machine guns was again encountered. Although wounded, 
he quickly grasped the situation, directed a platoon to proceed down a sunken road to make a flanking attack, and, under terrific fire, went across open ground to obtain the assistance of a tank, which he personally led and directed to the best possible advantage. While thus fearlessly exposing himself, he was again severely wounded by a shell. Notwithstanding considerable loss of blood, after lying on a stretcher for a while, he insisted on getting up and personally directing a further attack. By his magnificent example of devotion to duty and utter disregard for personal safety, all ranks were inspired to exert themselves to the utmost, and the attack resulted in the capture of over 200 prisoners, two batteries of field guns and numerous machine guns. Lieutenant Colonel Viscount Gort then proceeded to organise the defence of the captured position until he collapsed. Even then he refused to leave the field until he had seen the success signal go up in the final objective. The successful advance of the battalion was mainly due to the valour, devotion and leadership of this very gallant officer. We have on display the silver hip flask which belonged to Lord Gort and which was found on the parapet of the trench which he was occupying before he went forward to engage with the enemy. Even heroes occasionally need a drop of something strong to stiffen one's resolve. Subsequently, he was known as Tiger Gort. He won a second bar to his DSO in January 1919. He was also mentioned in dispatches eight times during the war. Gort was promoted to the substantive rank of Major on the 21st of October 1919 after attending a short course at the Staff College in Camberley. In 1919, he joined the headquarters of London District, and, having been promoted to Brevet Lieutenant Colonel on the 1st of January 1921, he returned to the college as an instructor. He left the Staff College in May 1923. Gort was promoted to Colonel in April 1926, with seniority backdated to the 1st of January 1925. In 1926, he became a staff officer at London District before becoming a chief instructor of the senior officer's school at Sheerness. In January 1927, he went to Shanghai, returning in August to give a first-hand account of the Chinese situation to the King and to the Prince of Wales. He returned home to be a staff officer at Headquarters 4th Infantry Division at Colchester. In June 1928, Gort was appointed as a commander of the Order of the British Empire. He went on to command the Guards Brigade for two years from 1930, before overseas training in India with the temporary rank of Brigadier. In 1932, he took up flying, buying a de Havilland Moth aircraft and being elected chairman of the Household Brigade Flying Club. In November 1935, he was promoted to Major General. He returned to the Staff College in Camberley as Commandant. In May 1937, Gort was appointed Companion of the Order of the Bath. In September 1937, he became Military Secretary to the War Minister, Leslie Hoare-Belisha, with the temporary rank of Lieutenant General. On the 6th of December 1937, as part of the purge by Hoare-Belisha of senior officers, Gort was appointed to the Army Council and made a General and replaced Field Marshal Sir Cyril Deverell as Chief of the Imperial General Staff. On the 1st of January 1938, he was made a Knight Commander of the Order of the Bath. On the 2nd of December 1938, Gort submitted a report on the readiness of the British Army. 
he observed that Germany, as a result of the acquisition of Czechoslovakia, was in a stronger position than the previous year, and that as a result of the government's decision in 1937 to create a general purpose army, Britain lacked the necessary forces for the defence of France. On the 21st of December, Gort recommended to the Chiefs of Staff that Britain would need to help France defend Holland and Belgium, and for that purpose the British Army needed complete equipment for four regular army infantry divisions and two mobile armoured divisions, with the Territorial Army with training equipment and then war equipment for four divisions. The First Sea Lord, Admiral Sir Roger Backhouse, replied that Britain's continental commitment might not be a limited liability. Gort replied, Lord Kitchener had clearly pointed out that no great country can wage a little war. He also attacked as a fallacy the theory of strategic mobility by the use of sea power, because in a modern war land transport was faster and cheaper than by sea. At the outbreak of the Second World War, Gort was appointed by Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain as the Commander-in-Chief of the British Expeditionary Force in France, arriving there on the 19th of September 1939. During this time, Gort played a part in a political manoeuvre, the Pillbox Affair, that led to the dismissal of War Minister Leslie Horbelisha. Unimpressed by his qualities for command, Horbelisha described Gort as utterly brainless and unable to grasp the simplest problem. Following the period of the phony war, the Wehrmacht's attack and breakthrough in the Ardennes in 1940 succeeded in splitting the French and British armies from each other, and on witnessing the astonishing total collapse of the French army before the Wehrmacht's invasion, Gort took the unilateral decision to abandon his orders received from the British government for a southward attack to be made to support the French army. Instead, on the 25th of May 1940, he ordered a retreat by the BEF northward towards the French coast. On reaching the coast, Gort oversaw the en masse retirement of the British Expeditionary Force back to the British Isles, involving the Battle of Dunkirk and the Dunkirk evacuation, while France was defeated and surrendered to the armies of the Third Reich four weeks later. With regard to his conduct as Commander-in-Chief in France in 1940, Gort is credited by some historians as reacting efficiently to the crisis and saving the BEF, while others hold a more critical view of his leadership, seeing his decision to abandon France during Germany's attack to the West as defeatist. Gort went on to serve in a variety of positions for the remainder of the war, but the chaotic rout of the BEF under his command from France had convinced Winston Churchill, the newly installed British Prime Minister, that he was an undesirable as a British Army General Staff Field Commander, and he was sidelined to non-combatant posts. On the day of his return to England from France on the 1st of June 1940, he was appointed an ADC General to King George VI. Gort was given the post of Inspector of Training and the Home Guard, but he felt that left him with nothing constructive to do. He went on to serve as Governor of Gibraltar in 1941 and 1942. In 1943, he succeeded Lord Galway as Colonel Commandant of the Honourable Artillery Company, a position he held until his death. As Governor of Malta, Gort's courage and leadership during the siege was recognised by the Maltese government, giving him the sword of honour. He pushed ahead with extending the airfield into land reclaimed from the sea, against the advice of the British government, but it was later thanked by the War Cabinet for his foresight when the airfield proved vital to the British Mediterranean campaign.
The king gave Gort his field marshal's baton on the 20th of June 1943 at Malta. On the 29th of September, Gort, together with Generals Eisenhower and Alexander, witnessed Marshal Badoglio signing the Italian surrender in Valletta Harbour. Gort was present when his son-in-law, Major William Sidney, received the Victoria Cross from General Harold Alexander, Commander-in-Chief of the Allied Armies in Italy. Gort ended the war as High Commissioner for Palestine and Transjordan. He served in this office for only one year. Despite growing tensions in Palestine, Gort strove to cultivate good personal relations with both Jews and Arabs, and was greatly admired and respected by both communities. After leaving Palestine and returning to England, Gort was admitted to Guy's Hospital, where an exploratory surgery revealed he was dying from inoperable liver cancer. On the 31st of March 1946, he died in Guy's Hospital at the age of 59. His body was entombed in the Sydney family vault at St John the Baptist Church, Penshurst, in the county of Kent. So that's it for this week. I hope you have enjoyed hearing a bit of Kipling poetry hearing about the abdication and about the bravery of Lord Gort. There will be a bit of a break in the podcast as I have to focus on installing all the safety arrangements at the museum to keep our staff and visitors safe when we reopen to the public. So look for the next episode in about two weeks' time. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to support what we are doing to survive the lockdown, then perhaps you would like to copy Major Marcham by making a donation. It's easy to do. Just log on to our website at www.theguardsmuseum.com and hit the Support Us button. Thank you. I have been Andrew Wallace. This has been episode 14 of Bearskins, Bandits and Bravery, Notes from the Guards Museum. So until next time, goodbye and God bless. Now, turn to your right and salute. Dismiss. Up, down and get away. Get away.